0: So here's the song. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My teaching will drop like rain. My sayings will drip like dew as rain drops upon the grass and showers upon new growth. Now, one thing I just thought I should probably mention is in Hebrew poetry, there's three kinds of devices that are used most of the time. There's what's called synonymous parallelism, antithetical parallelism, and synthetic parallelism. So I'll deal with synthetic parallelism first. Usually what you'll have is you'll have two or three lines that are all connected to each other. And they're all communicating one idea. So it's a line, and it's either broken by periods or commas. And you'll see the book of Psalms is full of this stuff. So you'll see two or three lines. The technical term is a bicolon or a tricolon. colon um, So it's three lines that communicate one idea. A synthetic parallelism is normally how we talk. She went to the grocery store, she bought broccoli, she came home, now she's chopping broccoli. So it's all one idea. It's about her going to the store and getting broccoli and coming back. That would be like a quad-colon. And so it's one idea that's, and there's nothing poetic about it. Every line gives you new information, but it's all the same. The next one is this one that's called synonymous parallelism. And we all know what synonymous means. Synonymous is when you say the same thing, but with different words. So he shut the door, he slammed the door, kind of a thing. Or I'm a high school teacher, so I have to use things that they'll remember. So he kicked the crap out of him, he beat the snot out of him. You laugh, but that stays in their head, and they do well in tests. So so this is synonymous parallelism. I said the exact same thing twice, but I use completely different words. Because to say, like, he he walked down the street singing, he walked down the street singing, he walked down the street singing, that's kind of boring. But if I said he walked down the street singing, he skipped down the street with great joy in his words, that's more interesting. And as I get, and then what happens is the more and more synonymous words I use, I paint a more poetic, emotional imagery of it. If you want facts, that's narrative. If you want emotions and imagery, that's poetry. And so the idea of synonymous parallelism is you say it several ways, say the same thing in several ways, but it's painting a more... Um, more greater imagery and greater emotions. Antithetical is opposite. So he will shut the door that no one can open or he will open a door that everyone can open. So it's the opposite. Or those who trust in the Lord will delight themselves in him. And those who are disobedient and wicked will end in ruin and death. So it's the same idea. Trusting, wickedness, life, death. They're saying the same idea. So, or he went through the door and she left the house. So the he and the she are opposite of each other and going in and leaving are opposite of each other. So that's a way to emphasize a point. And so all of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. You will always see two or three lines. Now a lot of your texts, not so much here, but when you get to Psalms, they'll indent it. So they'll have a line and they'll indent the next lines to show you that they're all connected. And so what you see here is, Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. So notice that heavens and earth are very similar to each other. They're things in creation. They're not totally synonymous because they're not the same thing, but they're both things in creation. In that sense, they are the same. But then I will speak the words of my mouth. That's synonymous. And then he does it again. My teachings will drop like rain. My sayings will drip like dew. So teachings and sayings are synonymous. And dripping like dew and dropping like rain are very synonymous. And then he goes on and says the raindrops upon the grass, the so showers upon the new growth. So, raindrops and showers are the same as grass and growth. And so I'm not going to go through every single line pointing out whether it's synonymous or antithetical, but I want you to notice that there's a real intentionality here. There's a poeticness that's going on in the Psalms and poetry and that kind of stuff. And it's trying to paint this very visual, graphic, emotional, rich, deep imagery of what God is. Because the narrative tells you the story of, about what God is doing, his character, and how he's active. But poetry expresses the emotions that are involved. And if you notice that in narratives, you get very little insight to what people are thinking or what they're feeling. It's mostly what God is just doing. But it's in the poetry that you get the emotions. You get the feeling. You get the imagery. And so as we go through, and just notice as you read through Psalms and that kind of stuff, now, there's always variations off of those three because with everything you can like twist it and tweak it and, and do very creative, imaginative, imaginative things with it. But everything is either synthetic, antithetical, or synonymous parallelism and all throughout poetry or tweaked in some kind of way to be clever or different. So just kind of pay attention that there's a richness in there as you go through this poetry. So he says that I'm speaking words that are going to give life just like rain and dew and showers bring life and growth and grass these words that i give are going to bring life verse 3 for i will proclaim the name of yahweh you must acknowledge the greatness of your god as for the rock his work is perfect for all his ways are just he is a reliable god who is never unjust he is fair and upright so notice the first thing he refers to God is the rock. And the first time that we've really seen that imagery is in the wilderness where God goes and he stands upon the rock and they strike God and the rock and it produces water and life. This, From that point on, God is constantly referred to as the rock. The rock appears hundreds upon hundreds of times specifically in poetry, and especially when you get to Psalms. And remember the idea is not a rock like that giant boulder outside the front of your school or some neighbor's house. The idea is this is a mountain, a cliff. Because this rock not only provides life, but it provides shelter from the elements and the storm and it also provides shelter from your enemies. And so it's a cleft and a rock that you hide in So your enemies cannot find you or attack you. It's a rock that you hide in that protects you from the storm that's ripping across creation. And it's a rock that produces life because a giant river is flowing out of it, not a drinking fountain kind of stream. And so this is the rock that God is. And then also it's constant and never changing. That rock will always be there. It will always be there because nothing can destroy it. And so this is the imagery. He is a rock That is everlasting, always standing, great and enormous, majestic and wondrous, providing protection from the elements, from your enemies, and providing life and water. That's the imagery that they would think. Now remember, this is what's called a metaphor. A metaphor is when you say something is something, but you know that's not logically true. So he is a rock. We all know that that's not, that's not makes sense. So how do you know when there's a metaphor? A metaphor is when you say something is something else, but everybody knows it logically doesn't make sense, so therefore it's a metaphor. If I said he is a man, you'd be like, oh, that's, that's a fact. But if I say he is a rock, you're like, no, he's not. That doesn't make logical sense. Therefore it becomes a metaphor. And a metaphor is when you say something is using the to, to be verb, or the to be verb is implied. They are, he is. Something like that. In this sense, you could either say, God is your guardian, your protector, he provides life, he <laughs> provides shelter, and you go on and on, and you're like, okay, we get it. <laughs> or you can invoke a figure's speech and say, he is a rock. And if you live in that time period, you know all the things that a rock can do. And this is the beauty of poetry, because the poetry can paint a thousand words with one very well-written clever phrase and so and you have to realize that we use metaphors and figures of speech all the time and this is one of my students when I teach this stuff to my students they're always like why do we have to learn this like oh my gosh this is poetry and poetry is like so English class and that kind of stuff so what I do is I've collected like an hour's worth of video clips from different movies. Batman Begins, Tombstone, okay, Sandlot and all that kind of stuff. And there's all these people using metaphors and figures of speech. Like you're killing me Smalls, or she broke my heart, or I'm sweating like a pig, we watched the sunset. And they, are like, and they go through all this and they're like, wow, we use this stuff a lot. And what we don't realize is that we use figures of speech and metaphors all the time in our vocabulary, but we like to think of ourselves such literal scientific people that we don't realize that. And even though poetry is hard to understand because we're Westerners, the reality is figures of speech and metaphors are a big part of our life, and we use it because they paint more graphic pictures, more imagery. They make your vocabulary and your conversations more interesting and more graphic, and that's what they're doing. I can either, I can give you an entire textbook about redemption and salvation and sacrifice and all that kind of stuff and spend hours, and it will feel dry, or I can put a cross up on the wall, and it will communicate all the same stuff, and if you grew up in the culture of what the cross means, then the cross can be a very powerful emotional multi-loaded theological statement to you or we can all sit here for four hours while I go through all these theological principles. Now there is a time and a place for that because the cross has to be taught but once it's taught then I can show images like crosses and sunsets and Jesus on the cross and that kind of stuff and then all those teachings that you've ever been taught come back and a simple thing called symbology where you use a concrete image to represent an abstract idea. Poetry is very powerful and very essential. It makes life more interesting. It communicates ideas better in a lot of ways once those ideas are understood. And it's very much a part of our vocabulary, whether we realize it or not. And so he says, verse 4, As for the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. He is a reliable God who is never unjust. He is fair and upright. Now, notice how many times he's emphasized the justice of God. There's not one time that they could ever accuse God of being unjust. In fact, the only time they could probably accuse him of being unjust was the fact that he didn't smash them like he was supposed to. Verse 5, his people have been unfaithful to him. They have not acted like his children. This is their sin. They are a perverse and deceitful generation. Now notice the contrast. Yahweh is a rock who is perfect. He is always faithful, always just. But his people have not been faithful. They have been perverse. This is how this song is serving as a testimony against them. Verse 6. Is this how you repay Yahweh, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator? He has made you and established you. Remember the ancient days. Bear in mind the years of past generations. Ask your father, and he will inform you. Your elders, and they will tell you. So he says, remember. Is this how you treat the God that did all these amazing things for you? Notice that even then, he doesn't focus on, you've been bad, you've been bad, bad, bad. You're going to be punished. He focuses on, your God is loving. loving. This is the way that you've decided to have a relationship with him. Even the wickedness, he's focusing on the relationship and not the behavior. The behavior is there. It is important, but it's not the foundation. It's not the emphasis. And then he says, he's your father. He's your creator. Now, this is incredible because the Jews, over time, will start making God so sovereign, so transcendent. By the time you get to the Second Testament, nobody's using language like father. In fact, the only person that uses the language like the Father is Jesus. And they're horrified that he could call the God of heaven Father. And Jesus uses it all the time. Because they've lost that intimacy. They were too afraid that if they made God too intimate, that they would lose that respect for him and that fear. And granted, that's a legitimate thing, because that's what's happened to us today as Christians. But God never intended you to pendulum swing or focus on one thing or the other. So the Jews focused way too much on the sovereignty and lost the relationship and then lost their obedience because it became about behavior. We went the other way. Jesus became so buddy, buddy, buddy that we lost our respect for him and our need to actually obey him because we love him. And what he says here is this is your father, your creator. Both are there. The intimate, relational, father as well as the sovereign creator of the universe that you answer to in the context of a look at all the things he's done for you relationally and you've disobeyed him sovereign obedience and God is always embracing and presenting both of those things to us we are the ones that can only usually grasp one or the other typically and he says if you don't know, then ask your fathers and they will teach you. Now remember one of the things he left off in that final call was, parents, don't forget to teach your children. And it's been a constant theme throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Teach your children, teach your children, teach your children all the time. And so he's emphasizing here is that your obedience, you are not obeying because you've forgotten who your father and creator is because your parents haven't taught you. The way they're supposed to. But jashurn became fat and kicked. And you got fat and thick and stuffed. Now what does jashurn mean? Righteous nation. It does refer to Israel. But it literally means righteous nation. But it doesn't mean righteous nation in a theological you are righteous. It means righteous nations as an eternal of endearment. Like a pet name. Like a name that you would pick for your little girl or something that communicates great affection. And the idea is that I have made you righteous. And you're special to me. And you belong to me. Now the irony here is, it emphasizes the rebellion all the more. Because God uses this very intimate, affectionate term of endearment. Of righteous nation and says, but you kicked back at me and you rebelled at me. And that makes the rebellion all the worse. You see, if you've got a scumbag father that physically abuses his kid and his kid punches back, most people are going to be like, he deserved that. But if you've got a father that is loving and holding their kid and singing to them and providing for them and nurturing them and that kid's just punching on the father, that kid looks really bad. And that's the term that he's here. He's using a very affectionate term of endearment righteous nation you kicked back at me and you fought and you got fat and stuffed you got spoiled on the things that i provided for you i gave you the best because i loved you and you took the best and you got spoiled on it and then you thought you could shake your fist at me and say i don't need me and you kicked at me and you walked away then he deserted the god who made him and he treated the rock who saved him with contempt. You abandoned the God that made you creator, and you rescind against the rock intimate relationship. They made him jealous with other gods. They enraged him with abhorrent idols. They sacrificed to the demons, not God, to the gods they had not known, to new gods they had recently come along, gods your ancestors had not known about. Now knows he doesn't focus on your bad little children. He focuses on the, you went after other gods. That's what it always comes down to. You abandoned me as a father, and you found a different father. A father you didn't know. A father you had no relationship with. And then he goes on and says, a father that's really a demon and not a god. And this is one of the clearest places where God makes it clear That when you're worshiping and sacrificing to idols and gods, you're really sacrificing to the demons. And you're really worshiping the demons. That the gods may not be real, but there's a very real demonic power behind them. There's a very real demonic power behind them. You have forgotten the rock who fathered you. And you put out of mind the God who gave you birth. Notice once again, sovereignty and relationship and the rock keeps getting repeated over and over again. This should emphasize all the more when Jesus comes along and calls himself the rock. He's invoking this psalm. He's invoking all this imagery, all the psalms and all of this as the rock. But Yahweh took note, verse 19, and despised them because the sons and the daughters enraged him. He said, I will reject them and I will see what will happen to them for they are a perverse generation, children who show no loyalty. Notice the relationship is still there. Even in his rejection, even in their punishment, he's still calling them children, relationship. They have made me jealous with false gods enraging me with other worthless idols. So I will make them jealous with the people that they do not recognize. With a nation slow to learn, I will enrage them. Now, what is he talking about there? You made me jealous by going after other gods. So I'm going to make you jealous by choosing another nation instead of you. Who is that? The Gentiles, the church. One day God is going to walk away from Israel, not abandon them, but walk away and pick a different group of people. But according to Romans 9, 10, 11, the whole point of picking us is so that Israel will see what we have that they no longer have and come back because God will never ever reject them because remember the restoration covenant but he will walk away he will reject them in a theological chosen sense he will walk away in a relationship sense but he will never abandon them in his covenant promises to them like I say the best way to just think of it is that they're in timeout. they're in timeout. Verse 22, a fire has been kindled by my anger, and it burns to the lowest sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew word for grave. So my fire burns down to the depths of the grave. It consumes the earth and produce and ignites the foundations of the mountains. I will increase their disasters. I will use up my arrows on them. That military language. They will be starved by famine, eaten by plague, and bitterly stung. I will send the teeth of the wild animals against them, along with the poisons of creatures that crawl in the dust. The sword will make my people childless outside, and terror will do so inside. They will destroy both young and man and virgin, the infant and the gray-haired man. I said, I want to cut them to pieces. I want to make the people forget that they ever existed. But I fear the reaction of their enemies. For their adversaries would misunderstand and say, Our power is great, and Yahweh has not done all of this. They are a nation devoid of wisdom, and there is no understanding among them. I wish that they were wise and could understand this, and that they could comprehend what will happen to them. So God says, I really want to punish you. I really need you to punish. I need you to understand how bad your sin is. But I'm going to stay my hand. And I'm not going to punish you as bad as I could. Because I don't want the other nations to think that I'm a false God, a weak God, a non-loving God. And think that you are going through all this because I'm incapable of protecting you. And then they will attack you and take advantage of you. And then they will never come and know me. And then the whole point of choosing you so the whole world would be blessed will be lost too. So I will stay my hand and I will not do my full punishment So that the nations will not see me as weak or unloving so that eventually the nations will come to me and you will come back to me. I wish you could understand this. And that's God's heart. I wish you could just understand who I am, who you are, and why all this has to be done. I think if you've ever been a parent, you're like, I wish you could just understand why we're going through this discipline. Verse 30. How can one man chase a thousand of them and two pursue ten thousand unless their rock had delivered them up and Yahweh had handed them over? For our enemies' rock is not like our rock. For our enemies' rock is not like our rock. So he's saying the rock that they find protection is not like this rock, the rock that I am. Or even our enemies concede. For their vine is the stock of Sodom, and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes contain venom, and their clusters of grapes are bitter. Their wine is snake poison, and deadly venom of cobras. Is this not stored up with me? Says Yahweh. Is it not sealed up in my storehouses? So he says, all the great produce, the great blessings that the nations can provide, is really venom. All the things that you go after, money, sex, power, friendships, security, it just really ends up poisoning your life. But my, I have storehouses of blessings. I will get revenge and pay them back at the time of their foot slips, for the day of their disaster is near, and the impending judgment is rushing upon them. And so God promises, even though I will use the nations to punish you, don't worry, one day I'll also punish the nations. Yahweh will judge his people and will change his plans concerning his servants. And when he sees that their power has dispersed and that no one is left, whether confined or set free, he will say, where are their gods, the rock in whom they sought security, who ate the best of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise and help you. Let them be your refuge. So when I destroy all the other nations and everybody says, hey, where's all their security and protection? Then you rise up and trust in them. When you see that their rock will crumble one day, and I, the rock, will still be standing, then who are you going to go to? That's the vision that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of a statue, a rock, a metal statue, better than a rock. And he built it up, and it became the glory, and it was all the nations but then he self-glorified himself and began to idolize himself. And because of that, he became worthless because the metals decrease in value as you go down. And then the little rock comes and destroys at a heel and turns into a mountain that fills the entire earth. And that is the kingdom of Yahweh. And then you see the beast version of that in Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is the parallel to that. And so that's what God is saying. When that statue, all the kings of the earth, collapse and fall, and then all that's left is the mountain of God, then are you going to go to those nations and say, protect me now? See now that I indeed, I am he, says Yahweh, and there is no other God besides me. I kill and give life. I smash and I heal, and no one can resist my power. For I raise up my hand to heaven and say as surely as I live forever, I will sharpen my lightning like swords, and my hand will grasp hold the weapon of judgment, and I will execute vengeance on my foes, and I will repay those who hate me, and I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword will devour flesh, and the blood of the slaughtered and the captured and the chief of the enemies its leaders. Cry out, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge his servants' blood. He will take vengeance against his enemies and make atonement for his land and people." And that's how he ends the song. And he ends the song by saying, one day I will kill all those who hate me. And their blood will be atonement for sin that will purify the land. Your sin has destroyed my creation. Your sin has corrupted my creation. And just like in the sacrificial system, the only thing that can atone is blood. Therefore, when I destroy the nations... That will atone and cleanse the earth of all the things that you've done to it. And that's how God ends it. There will be judgment. So here's the question of Israel. What rock are you going to trust in on Judgment Day? What rock are you going to trust in Judgment Day? Are you going to trust in America as your rock? Are you Are going to trust in the American dream as your rock? Or are you going to trust in Yahweh? That's the question. Because according to the vision of Daniel, all nations will fall. Any questions? He's made it clear. A lot of people could say, how could you, God? But at the same time, he has made it very clear. This is what's going to happen. And I've made it very clear. You don't have to go up into the depths, the heights of the heavens and the stars. You don't have to go across the ocean. You don't have to, through your own wisdom and knowledge, read all these books and figure all this stuff out. So, like some trigonometry equation, you just need to read the Bible, fall in love with this God, and surrender to Him. And if you do that, you'll have life and you will be in the rock. This is not a mystery. This is not a secret. If God is unabashed which we believe you, then why does he get angry? Why does he get jealous? Why does he not create us correctly? Against? Well, he did. But we, he gave us a choice and we sinned. No, that that. Yeah, but you still had children knowing that they were going to probably be disobedient. Yeah. But you are knowing know enough me. that you knew that they'd be disobedient. They would hurt people. You didn't know how much they would hurt people, but you knew that they would hurt people, and you knew there was a chance that they would probably walk away. They could, and you still chose to have them. We are never, ever, ever, ever told why God loves us. We're never told why he created us. We're never told why he took the risk. That is, you can philosophize and theologize all you want, but we are never, ever, ever told. All I can say is my best example is I knew that having three daughters meant that they were going to make mistakes and do things and hurt people. No matter how great they are, they're still going to hurt people. And I knew there's a really good chance that they may completely walk away from me and God. Completely. Even if I do everything perfect, they still could walk away. And the same way that God did everything perfect and tons of people walked away. And yet we still chose to have children and most of the time when people are like hey do you want to hold my baby i was like no right like kids are cute and that great but like i don't know what to do with this thing this is a crying pooping machine like i don't know what to do with this thing it's fragile like oh you got to hold the neck just right or i'll die like i don't want that responsibility. but when i had my daughter a switch like went off and i was flooded with this love for her that I have no idea where it came from. And if I, as a selfish, self-absorbed man, who has no love for all these other children, in that kind of a sense, can all of a sudden, metaphysically and supernaturally, just in seconds, see this gray baby that came out covered in liquid, fall in love with it and be willing to do anything for it, as a corrupt sinner, then that gives me a little glimpse of God's love for us. And even though he's all-knowing and knew we would do this, he also, because he's all-knowing and outside of time, he already had that love for us. See, I could only have that love for my daughter when she came into existence. But he already had that love for us before we ever came into existence because technically for God, we already did exist because he already knows all things near the future and so that's the best explanation that i can give is that if you are totally in love with your children and willing to do anything for them no matter how corrupted they become god already knew us before we were ever created and he chose and i don't know why and i can't explain it it's just as a fallen corrupt selfish human being that's the closest and best example i can give and even that love that I have is a little taste of what God has for us. And all I have to do, all I can do, and all these things, all I can all I have is the character of God throughout the Bible is just so clearly a character of goodness and love. And I just gotta trust in that and the things that I don't understand. And that's my best answer. So I hope that helps. <laughs> because of that great love that he has, that we have the capacity to really hurt him. Yes. And I think this is all coming out in this, um, in this song, is, is really how deeply he's hurt by us when we reject that love. Exactly. Great point. And C.S. me at that point in C. mere Christianity, that the better you create something, the more damage it will do when it goes bad, and the more it will hurt you. God is an emotional being. I know sometimes it's hard to think of God as an emotional being because he's like, we our emotions just like ruin us so many times. But our emotions also make us very great a lot of times. And so God is an emotional being because we're creating his image, which means our emotions came from him. And so, yes, like the jealousy that he has for us is the jealousy that you have for your children. It's not a jealousy in like stifle hover parent or hover boyfriend girlfriend kind of a sense it's the deep 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 love that he has for you that he doesn't want to lose you because he loves you so much therefore when that thing goes bad exactly like you said that means it hurts him all the more and the greater that something is the more perfect it is and the more intimate it is that when that thing goes wrong the greater the damage and the greater the hurt that that thing is as well and here's the thing for whatever reason, God in his sovereign wisdom decided that the risk was worth it. Because whatever he is going to do at the end of all creation, that we, and that's the other thing too, is we, we're, we're, all we know is the mire, the filth, the muck. And there are great beauties in this muck of sin, and there's great experiences with God in this fallen world, but all we know is everything is corrupted. We have no idea what life after the redemption of creation is going to be like. And so it's hard for us to say how, why, seriously, when we don't even know what the end result is. And it's kind of like building anything with your kids are like, oh my gosh, it's so much work. We've been working for hours. It's been five minutes. Okay? <laughs> I can't handle it anymore. Yet, if you walk away from this project, you'll run around the backyard for two hours. And they think everything's so miserable because they don't see what we see. They don't see the end result. And then you get the garden built, or then you build the dresser, you build the whatever, or you paint the drawing, or, and then they're like, this is awesome. And now they're totally love and appreciative of it. And that's nothing compared to what he's going to do in the redemption of creation. And so we have to remember that, too, is that we have no idea what it's going to be like for the garden to be restored. Just like our children have no idea what the end result is, like when you're cleaning house. Now, isn't this awesome to have a clean house now, even though you felt like I was a slave master, just getting you to pick up five animals? So, stuff animals? The reality is there's an appreciation there. I know I always use my children in bad examples, but come on, we're in the Torah. There's like, there's not very many opportunities to use all the good examples in the Torah. So when you're reading songs like this, so that's my best answer. And I know it is very, very lacking, but that's the best that we have. Verse 44. Then Moses went with Joshua, son of Nun, and recited all the words of this song to the people. And when Moses finished reciting these words to all of Israel, he said to them, Keep in mind the words I am solemnly proclaiming to you today. You must command your children to observe carefully all the words of this law. For this, is not, for this is no idle word for you. It is your life. By this word you will live a long time in the land. You are about to cross the Jordan and possess. So this song that we just went through, that wasn't Moses singing it to the people. That was God singing it to Moses. And now that Moses just heard it, now he went to the people and sung it to them. That would have been amazing to hear. And I guarantee you there was probably weeping.